Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with my good friend, Professor Akil Amar. Hello again, Akil. Hey, Andy. So I see that you are wearing your Ever Scholar tie, which of course you wear. I, I always wear my Ever Scholar tie. When we were at the Supreme Court, I wore my Ever Scholar tie. Yes, and uh, I'm surprised we didn't get more questions about it. You would think people would have been concerned about that rather than more versus well, they Harper. Were, I, I, at the at the um, oral argument itself, everyone was just in awe when they heard your voice. They said, "I recognize that voice from the podcast." That's Andy Lipka, <laughs> you know. And I introduced myself as um, uh, chopped liver. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, um, you know, actually, we we get questions from our our listeners, and we do need to attend to more to those questions on on a podcast soon, which we will. But. Um, We've had a few questions about Everscholar. People have asked me, is uh, Professor Morgan be teaching any more Everscholar programs? And the answer is yes. Um, and if you go on the Everscholar website now, you'll see uh, a whole bunch of courses that you know took place recently. You won't see a lot of courses uh, up that are about to take place. There is one that ha- is accepting uh, registrants now, but there are a whole bunch that are about to be uh, posted there. So I thought I'd give our, our listeners a quick heads up on what's coming. Um, there's going to be a course in uh, April, April 20th to 23rd on statesmanship and its practitioners. The exact title is, is to be determined. And that's uh, with some, some great faculty, including Stephen Smith from Yale and Vicki Sullivan from, from Tufts and Dan Schillinger from Yale and uh, also uh, Philip Bobbitt from the University of Texas and Columbia and from America's Constitution. And Stephen Skaronik, also from Yale. So this is, you know, uh, very exciting. At the end of May, going into June, probably May 27th to June 11th, something like that, there'll be a program in Italy, uh, in Rome and Florence, with a fantastic faculty that we're going to announce very soon. And then later in the year, there'll be a a program on Chinese foreign policy, uh, which we're putting together now. And we're hopeful that Akil will be teaching with uh, Gordon Wood once again. Gordon has contacted us and expressed expressed interest in repeating his appearance uh, at Everscholar. So um, I encourage all our listeners to sort of watch this space, everscholar.org. Maybe we'll put a link up on the podcast page to that as well so people can, can get there. Um, so and, more, Gordon, and, and Gordon Wood's ideas about the centrality of state constitutions in the American Revolution um, are hugely relevant to the Moore versus Harper case that we've been talking about um, in uh, recent episodes and that we're going to continue to talk about today. Yes. So last time we started to talk about uh, the oral argument, as, as, you, as you mentioned. Um, so just a, a quick recap. We talked, of course, about the experience of attending them, but we also played for you the some clips that included the uh, opening statements from several of the advocates. We got into questions of uh, substantive versus procedural restrictions on uh, the actions of judges or other state actors other than the elected legislative branch. We played some uh, a, a clip from Justice Kagan, which get, got into the precedents. We play, Justice Jackson discussed the notion of the legislature as a creature of the state constitution. And uh, really, you know, quite a lot, quite a wide-ranging discussion. But today, um, there's a lot more. 
So um, we're going to start off, I want to get right into it, um, with, with, well, with two big questions that we're going to address. One, what is a legislature? Why is that relevant to this case? And two, what is the proper standard of review by the Supreme Court, or federal court for that matter, um, of a state court that purports to review a statute in the name of and in terms of the state constitution? So those are the two questions that were that occupied the court for quite a lot of its uh, of its time during the oral argument. These, especially the second one, might seem like a, a fairly technical question, but if you listen to our last uh, podcast, I think you one thing that came out of that is is that Professor Amar is the best at taking these technical questions and making them approachable. So it's important to understand them in order to understand the case. And frankly, I'm not sure that everyone in the audience even understood all these questions um, and just how important they were. So let's get into it. So we're going to start off with this question of what is a legislature? Oh, and Andy, um, the one other thing that we're going to do is make sure that our audience hears the voices that they didn't hear last week. Last week, they heard the, the voices of six of the justices, but they didn't hear from Justice Gorsuch. They didn't hear from Justice Barrett. They didn't hear from Justice Alito. And they're going to hear from them today and hear the advocates' responses. They heard most of the oral advocates, but they didn't hear Don Verley. So we promise today that they will hear from all the people that spoke in the courtroom that they didn't hear from yesterday, uh, last week. Um, and there are going to be some encore performances. They're going to hear again from from um, some of the, the, the ones that we profiled, both the advocates and the, the justices whom we profiled in our last episode. All right. Well, let's start with Justice Gorsuch then, because he had some statements which I think will uh, encourage us to explore the notion of what is a legislature. So here's a quote from uh, a clip with Justice Gorsuch in conversation uh, with Solicitor General Prelogar and then uh, Justice Kagan comes in on this as well. Justice Barrett was pointing out, the question before us is whether the rule, the time, place, and manner regulation has been prescribed by the legislature. And we can say, hey, ordinarily courts will interpret and apply the rules prescribed by the legislature, and executive agents will enforce the rules prescribed by the legislature pursuant to their ordinary obligations as executive officers. I get that. But it's something different, I think the argument goes from the other side, when a state court says, or any, any institution says, we're not going to enforce the rules prescribed by the legislature for whatever reason. In this case, it's because of the state constitution. But it could be uh, an executive officer who contumaciously refuses to do so, or whatever one imagines. But here, by definition, I think we're in agreement that the rules prescribed by the legislature are not going to be applied in this case. So I think that's the argument as I understand it. I just wanted to give you a chance to address it because I haven't heard anybody address it yet. Sure, and I appreciate the opportunity to do so. 
So I think that the premise of the question was focused on the legislature's power under the Elections Clause to set the time, place, and manner of federal elections. And uh, if I'm understanding the question correctly, our view is not that it would transgress the legislature's power to depart from its law when that's the ordinary practice of judicial review. It might be the case that the legislature's work has to yield to a state constitutional provision because however they prescribe the time, place, and manner of elections could violate equal protection, for example, under the state constitution as well as the federal if it violates one person, one vote. So sometimes state courts, through the ordinary process of judicial review and constitutional adjudication, are, of course, setting aside what the legislature has done with respect to its manner regulations. by definition, invoking some higher authority under state law to not enforce the rules about time, place, and manner prescribed by the legislature, right? Correct. And our theory is that that's consistent with the Elections Clause under this Court's precedent because the framers vested the state legislature with their lawmaking power, and that has always been understood to be subject to state constitutional constraints. There is no category of state law that has previously existed that detaches the state legislature from the state constitution and allows it free reign to have whatever laws it wants without that state constitutional check. And we think that the text and the history and precedent forcefully reinforce this idea that the framers would have understood that when they were giving this lawmaking power, it carried with it those ordinary checks and balances. And when Mr. Thompson says, well, it should be subject to the constraint of federal review, but not of of, uh, state constitutional review, what do you think of that distinction? I think this court has rejected that distinction already in cases like Smiley and Hildebrandt, and they rejected exactly the theory that my friend has proposed about looking at the federal function. In Smiley, the court said, that's not what you look at. You look at the specific function that's been assigned, and when it's a lawmaking function, that carries with it the ordinary checks and balances that apply to state law, including those applied by the state constitution. That was the very distinction the court drew with Hawk versus Smith and the separate ratification function. That's a different question. And cases like Lester that he's repeatedly relied on are looking at a different function under the Constitution. But with lawmaking, the relevant fact is that the framers would have understood that that comes with it, judicial review and state constitutional constraints, both substantive and procedural. Because the lawmaking authority of the entity in question comes from the state Constitution, right? I mean, if it's a lawmaking function that we're tapping into... It's the state constitution that gives that entity its lawmaking power and tells it when and under what circumstances and how it can act as the legislature. Right? Exactly. And this is black letter law, Justice Jackson. A a law that violates the Constitution is no valid law at all. In North Carolina, like in many other places, it's void ab initio. That is the kind of constraint that goes into and and describes the conditions that attach to the making of law in the first place. So, in effect, it's as though the state court is saying you are not, quote unquote, the legislature for the purpose of the elections clause. Within the meaning of the Elections Clause, yes, yes, because that's a lawmaking role, we think that the the framers would have understood that it's carrying with it that constraint. And that traces directly from the Articles of Confederation, because they similarly prescribed this kind of function on state legislatures to provide for the manner of selecting delegates to the Continental Congress. And virtually every state constitution in the relevant period, 10 out of 11, had substantive constraints that hemmed in the legislature in how they carried out that function. Okay, so we have another quote by Justice Gorsuch. Would you like to comment at this point, Akil? Yeah, let me jump in because, wow, that seems so darn technical. All these technicalities, let me try to step way back. And uh, Justice Gorsuch is a textualist. He is focusing on the word legislature. I'm a textualist too, 
but there are two different ways of understanding legislature. And he said, oh, I haven't heard you address this point about legislature. With all due respect, Justice Jackson, even earlier in the oral argument, had made this point. I think she made it more clearly and absolutely brilliantly in this exchange. So here's actually what he, Justice Gorsuch, isn't seeing and that Justice Jackson, more so than the others that you heard, was seeing. She's saying when a state entity that calls itself the legislature passes and acts a law that's a violation of the state constitution, as understood by the state Supreme Court, that entity really isn't the legislature. That's the point. General Prelogger says, oh, when they do something that they're not allowed to do under the state constitution, or, this is Elena Kagan, the federal constitution, she says, it's not a valid law. It's no law. It's void ab initio. Fine. But it's a more direct response to Justice Gorsuch. If we say, it's not just that it's not a law, it's that it's not a law because the entity that was doing it isn't a proper legislature within the meaning of the state constitution that creates and shapes and bounds um, that that uh, entity, both procedurally and substantively. So she, uh, Justice Jackson, is the, the clearest, understanding this textual point, you are not the legislature. Now, what did Justice Gorsuch say? He says, oh, well, when these other entities are, are, are doing that, they're defying the legislature. No, they're defining the legislature. In effect, he analogized a state court disregarding the, the statutory enactment as akin to a contumacious executive. What does contumacious mean? That means someone who's acting actually in contempt, who's actually just disregarding law, maybe willy-nilly. No, that's precisely not what's happening. Now, there are different formulations. Solicitor General Prelogar's formulation is legislature includes the ordinary attributes of lawmaking and judicial review as part of it. And that's a fine way of thinking about it. But an even more forceful way of thinking about it is if the state constitution so provides, they could give the entirety of this a policymaking determination to the state courts, just as they could give it in its entirety to a redistricting commission. That was the Arizona case, just as they could give the entirety of it if the state constitution so provided to the electorate through initiative and referendum. They could define that as the legislature for Article One purposes. So once you understand that the state constitution has virtually the state through its state constitution has virtually carte blanche about how to define what the legislature is, you see that Justice Gorsuch has just made a mistake at step one in thinking about the legislature too narrowly. And, and as we heard last week, one way of seeing that is to understand that gubernatorial veto has always been understood as part of the legislature, even though in ordinary English, his kind of English, ooh, you would say, oh, the governor isn't part of the legislature. Government is separate from the, the legislature. One final point, uh, two, two final points. Oral advocates try to be agreeable. And one thing that Attorney 
uh, that Solicitor General Prelogger said that I, I think I went to say that she said correct at a certain point. I would say not quite. Okay, but she wanted to be, um, and and then she went on to actually you know disagree. But but because I think he's making a mistake with all due respect at step one. You know, had I been an oral advocate, I would have stopped him right there and said, actually, we disagree about what a legislature is. That's, that's not correct. We, we think that what you call a legislature, an act, what it calls a law, that's a violation of the state constitution as understood by the state Supreme Court, that enactment is not a law. And the entity that enacted it from a certain point of view can be understood as not a proper lawmaker, not a proper legislature. And, and so to understand what a legislature is, you have to understand the entire system, which includes courts and could, in fact, be given altogether to courts. There's a, there's a case that Vic and Steve and I cite in our brief. It's from the founding. It's called Calder versus Bull. It's even before John Marshall is chief justice. And the justices in Calder versus Bull are utterly emphatic that a state, if it wants, can make its legislature its Supreme Court, can make its Supreme Court its legislature. And in Britain, of course, the, the, the House of Lords is the highest court. The Supreme Court is you know, part of the ordinary lawmaking system. A state can basically, it's the master. So going forward, actually, it, the, the Constitution is best read as drawing no real important distinction going forward between a state deciding how, in effect, to regulate the time, place, and manner of congressional elections through its constitution and the legislature just defining the time, deciding the time, place, uh, regulating the time, place, and manner, because the state constitution can tell the legislature what to do, what it can't do, procedurally, substantive, can cut the ordinary legislature out of the loop and create a different legislature, a commission, the electorate itself by initiative or referendum, can give it all together to the courts or any combination thereof. One final thing, a Solicitor General Prelogger also just mentioned a case called Hawk versus Smith. That is a case in a different line of jurisprudence involving lesser, and that's uh, uh, for certain purposes, actually, legislature does mean what Justice Gorsuch thinks it means when it comes, for example, to picking U.S. senators before the 17th Amendment, when it comes to ratifying federal constitutional amendments under Article 5. So, Justice Gorsuch, you are correct. Sometimes legislature means what you think it means, but other times, no, it doesn't. And this is one of those other times. And the clearest response to Justice Gorsuch, in my view, came from Justice Jackson, whose position is identical to the ones that, that Vic and Steve and I put forward in our amicus brief. We think that's the cleanest and clearest and best rooted in originalism, understanding of, of the relevant legal principles, and makes sense of all the cases as well, and is clean and, and completely workable, and doesn't result in all sorts of weird and arbitrary distinctions. And I think as we go through this podcast, we'll see why the, your answer matters. You know, yes. This question. You know, yes. Um, you might say, well, pre, you know, Solicitor General Prelog, well, she was close. Well, you know, she was close, close enough, and, you know, and maybe, and, maybe and, not. And, you know, so. and Verilli was close and Neil Katyal was close, but no, the, the one who really nailed it is Justice Jackson. Okay. Well, we have another example of uh, Justice Gorsuch discussing this. Um, but it's not uh, completely repetitive. And also this brings in uh, former Solicitor General Varelli into the discussion. 
Actually, this follows right up on that, so that was very helpful. Um, glad, glad I waited. Um, uh, the question, I think, as Justice Barrett uh, suggested, is has the legislature prescribed uh, the time, place, and manner? And I, th I think your standard and, and our, our, our sky-high astronomical, and I think we ventured into outer space at point standard, uh, is asking – have they, has the judicial opinion in interpreting the law, let's do with statutes first, gone so far afield that we can no longer fairly say as a matter of federal law that the legislature is the one who prescribed the time, place, and manner? Is that a fair understanding of, of our task here as I think that, under that, federal that, law? The un, I think that's kind of the underpinning uh, of the idea that what you're trying to solve for is the problem of uh, – state court going so far afield uh, and being so disconnected from existing precedent, from history, uh, et cetera, that um, you would come to the conclusion that they're really not uh, engaging in the judi function of judicial Well, review, the, the right? legislature didn't prescribe these things. I mean, that's the text that we're asked to well, interpret, right? Right. But I, I guess, Your Honor, I would say that I – mean, uh, and, and they've gone so far afield. If, if I could just say it this way. Well, I, I just want to make just, yeah. just make sure we're on the same page. You know, that's, well, the, that's the federal standard. And one way of analyzing that, I think, if I'm understanding you, and if I'm not, please say so, when we're dealing with statutory law, is if they've gone so far afield or into outer space, that's an indication that it's no longer the legislature prescribing the Well, I guess I would put it differently. Okay. I guess what I would ah. say is that, um, the, that the framers took legislatures as they found them, that the, uh, that the judicial review under the state constitution is a condition of uh, the no normal operation of state law in the language of Smiley, um, that, um, and therefore uh, should be expected that courts will review uh, federal uh, election regulation uh, by state legislatures under the state constitution, that that and that they okay. can th validate. Th thank you, Mr. So. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and once again, I think that was a pretty good answer um, by the advocate, former Solicitor General Verley, but a little too deferential. I would say, had I been asked that question, no, with all due respect, Justice Gorsuch, we are not on the same page. You have a different understanding of the legislature, and you think it's a problem if the state constitution says this entity cannot do X and must do Y. And you would say, but it says legislature. And I would say legislature means whatever the state constitution wants it to mean. And that includes a veto, but it can include a council of revision, which involves judges. It includes judicial review. It could give the thing entirely to repeat to courts or to a commission or to an alternative body that we could call the congressional districting legislature, legislature number two. We could have legislature number one, legislature number two. It's like um, in Dr. Seuss, thing one and thing two. It could give it to the electorate itself. That could be the legislature for congressional districting purposes. So since this is the nub of the issue for a textualist, for Justice Gorsuch, and I myself am a textualist, I would beg Justice Gorsuch and his clerks to, to do two things, to read our amicus brief, because we, we are textualists, Steve Calabresi and Vic Amar and I, and we have a different understanding of the text. And also, I'd invite Justice Gorsuch and his law clerks to hear the relevant clip when um, I debated this issue 
at the annual lawyers convention in Washington, D.C., of the Federalist Society. And at the end and at the beginning of the debate, Justice Gorsuch, most of the audience, I think, was on your side. And at the end of the debate, and these are card-carrying Federalist Society folks, they're textualists, they were on my side because it does, it comes down, it all comes down to what legislature means if you're a textualist. And you are and I am, but I think you actually get it. And I always, and Andy, you know this, I was predicting forever that Justice Gorsuch would be the hardest nut to crack, so to speak, the one who would begin I think, whose priors would be most inconsistent with mine. And he's a textualist. He's a principal textualist in all sorts of other uh, domains. But he needs to understand that the text can be read and understood in two different ways. So, Andy, I think you actually may have gone above and beyond um, and not just pulled clips from the Supreme Court oral argument, but you actually found that Federalist Society clip, which I think would be very useful, one-stop shopping for our audience to hear, and actually if Justice Gorsuch or any of his law clerks is listening to this episode at some point, for them to hear. Because this is, I think, uh, in addition, what Verrilli and Prelogger could have said, and it is, in fact, what Justice Jackson did emphatically say. He famously said that is President Clinton, then President Clinton, oh, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, okay? Well, this one does, I think, I agree with my friend John, it comes down to what the meaning of the word legislature is. And there are two plausible interpretations, not one. And my view actually is the less plausible view to the ordinary person on the street what has given the thing three minutes worth of thought. Um, um, but it's clearly the better view for anyone who's gone to law school and who has a brain. Clearly. That's a high bar, and I'm going to try to show it. Here's what ordinary people, if you go out um, and say, in Manhattan, you say, is Governor Hochul part of the legislature of New York? They say, what are you talking about? No, of course not. Governor not part of the legislature. Legislature meets over there. She lives, you know, in this different place. There's um, uh, the, the legislature is the uh, state assembly and state senate, and then there's the governor. Go, you ask just a person on the street. Does c Congress include the president? You say, no. What are you talking about? The Congress? They meet up on Capitol Hill over there, and it's the House and the Senate. And then the president—that's the executive branch. That's a different thing. And if you think it's an ordinary body, then you're going to think, actually, that here's the problem. You see? Here's the problem. You're going to think, and he said it. He said, oh, do governors participate in the selection of senators before the 17th Amendment? They don't. It says legislature, you see? And governors were not part of picking senators um, uh, pre-17th Amendment. And I'm saying, oh, but governors are part of the process of picking, um, uh, of, of uh, legislating the rules for um, congressional selection or presidential selection. Oh my God, the mind, the head explodes. He's saying legislatures means one thing for Senate selection, pre-17th Amendment, and a different thing for congressional election and presidential election. Yes, it does. Oh, 
But the word mean, has to mean the same thing in both places. No, it doesn't. The world's expert on this question, intertextualism, is now addressing you. And you have to read the intertextualism article in the Harvard Law Review, where I explain, you know, when Steve isn't there to correct me, and, um, and Vic isn't there to improve the, the prose, but sometimes words in the Constitution or phrases mean different things in different contexts. Are corporations persons within the meaning of the Constitution? Well, yes and no. Yes, when it comes to due process and just compensation. No, when it comes to one person, one vote. Because last time I checked, corporations don't vote, you see, on election day, you know, yet. Um, I know some of you want to change that, but, but, but um, okay. Um, Congress, what does Congress mean? Sometimes in the Constitution, Congress means the House and Senate. The president shall give, from time to time, information on the State of the Union to Congress. And sometimes Congress means House and Senate and the president. The word Congress appears 60 times in the Constitution, and sometimes it means one thing, and sometimes it means the other. As when Congress decides to admit new states, from day one, that process has involved George freaking Washington and, uh, and his successors. Congress, under Article 4, um, legislates for the territories. And it doesn't say Congress by law. And it's not in Article 1, which has the presentment clause. You see, it's Article 4. So, oh, context matters. So I'm saying sometimes legislature does mean this ordinary body, House, um, the, the Assembly, and the Senate. And sometimes it means the lawmaking system of the jurisdiction. Just like Congress sometimes means House and Senate, and sometimes means House and Senate and President in a lawmaking system. Okay, so there are two definitions, actually, if you've gone to law school and have a brain for what legislature means. And one of them, and only one of them, is consistent with everything that we've done from day one and even day zero and day minus one. And I'm going to tell you what the original evidence shows on this. Legislature can mean a body, the state assembly, the state house, on its own. And that's how they pick senators and always have or can mean the lawmaking system, the lawmaking power as defined by the parent constitution. Okay? Now, that's the choice. So that's the textual point, Justice Gorsuch. And that's what Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson said. Now, I go on in the debate to give you all the originalist evidence, because from even before the Constitution's enactment, under the Articles Confederation, it, the, the, the word legislature was used, and yet state constitutions told their ordinary state lawmaking bodies what they could and couldn't do. State constitutions regulated congressional elections even before the Constitution under a clause that looks almost identical to the clause of Article One. So the clause of Article One was drafted with um, words that had already come pre-interpreted and, and pre-applied by various states, and to repeat, state constitutions in a whole bunch of states actually intervened and told the ordinary state lawmaking entity what it could and couldn't do and how, procedural and substantive. Said, for example, you have to have free and fair congressional elections in states like North Carolina, for example. Okay, and state constitutions did so immediately after the Constitution's ratification, and have done so ever since, 
And that's where Neil and a Solicitor General Prelogger come in and say, oh, if Justice Gorsuch is right, everyone else has been wrong from day one, indeed, from you know before day one, from day zero, from day minus one under the Articles of Confederation. So either they're all wrong, everyone in the world, in almost all states, and almost every year, forever, or, Justice Gorsuch, you need to rethink your understanding of the word legislature because there are two, not one way of understanding it. And you will see that clearly. And this was the Chief Justice's opening question. If you ask just the simple question, is the governor part of the legislature or not? Because you have, with all due respect, Justice Gorsuch, a real problem explaining why the governor is actually part of the legislature because you have a different understanding of legislature. That's actually what's hanging you up. And I concede... Justice Gorsuch, with the greatest of respect, I concede that your understanding at first seems to be the more obvious one. It just can't be the right one when you actually understand the whole system and 200 years of gloss and precedent and everything else. So that's and, – and the justices in Bush versus Gore who did not have the benefit of scholarly briefing – you know, they read the word legislature, three concurring justices led by William Rehnquist, joined by Justice Scalia, for whom you have, I know, very great respect, and Justice Thomas. They read the word legislature in this, what we call in the amicus brief, flat-footed way. And that's, again, to repeat, I concede that that's a possible way of reading the word. I think it's, in the end, not the most sensible one. It just doesn't fit everything else. And the one that fits everything else is Justice Jackson's idea that when this ordinary entity does things that are violations of the state constitution, we can say with prelogger what they're doing is not law. They're not, proper, they're not regulating properly. Or we could say in a more textualist way they are not acting as the proper legislature of the state of North Carolina. Okay, so under this understanding, then you've got, you know, this legislative machine or legislative apparatus or, you know, or lawmaking system or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And the Constitution says, okay, we need an election regulation. So we stick a piece of paper in this machine and it gets churned through whatever the state Constitution says should happen and outcomes the uh the regulation so in the in the mm-hmm. case of north carolina you know sometimes the court gets involved um uh to you know to review it to make sure it's operating correctly whatever okay mm-hmm. out comes this regulation now the rest of this case seemed to concern us hang on with- hang on andy just on that um and since we talked in our last episode you know that system could involve a council of revision which involves judges very early in the process. And that was 1789, 1792, New York. And that's where you actually, way before even I saw it, said, oh, judges are part of this system. Applying the state constitution to what the New York Assembly and and Senate have initially proposed. And and they, they were doing that. Um, in the very first set of congressional elections in 1789, and they did it again in 1792. And that powerful originalist evidence, Justice Gorsuch, that in the founding generation, people understood legislature, with all due respect, the word legislature, my way, not your way. Okay, so, so out comes the regulation. And then much of the rest of the argument, or what was left of the argument, 
consisted of okay this thing gets spit out by the by the by this apparatus is that the end or does the supreme court or other federal court ever have a role at this point the u.s supreme court as yes. distinct from the yes. state supreme court that's part of the apparatus the part right. of the north carolina system yes now you know uh so i know steve calabresi was saying that um you know we're uh the constitution is relatively agnostic as to the what's in that apparatus as long as it's a Republican form of government. Um, yes, you could, you could give it to courts altogether. And by the way, today courts in places like North Carolina are elected. So they're, they're just a, another kind of legislature, if you will, if the people of North Carolina want them to be. And that's ultimately a question of, here, I'm teeing it up again for you, Andy, that's ultimately a question of the meaning of the North Carolina state constitution and the question is, once the North Carolina Supreme Court has ruled on the meaning of the North Carolina state constitution, what, if anything, is left for a, the U.S. Supreme Court or any other federal court to review? And Justice Thomas actually asked a version of that question right out of the gate. It was the very first question asked, but you're absolutely right, that question kept coming back in different versions and flavors and incarnations throughout the course of the oral argument. And that's what we're going to spend most of the rest of our time actually addressing. It seems really technical, but the case will, will turn on this question of standard of review. So we've already talked about the one big question, what is the legislature? That's a textual thing. That's Justice Gorsuch's big question, and I tried to respectfully but directly answer him. And he said at one point, if you disagree, say you disagree. Yes, I disagree. Okay. What's the legislature? That's the textual point. Now, what's the standard of review? And you've, you've picked for us a bunch of clips that actually show this question in different facets and, and, and flavors. Right. And I just want to mention first, in our last episode, uh, we considered what the petitioners said should be a standard, a question of whether it was a substantive intervention, you know, versus a procedural one. And that, I have they, to say, they had got, all sorts of gobbledygook. Yeah, that, I have to say, got, got very little. I'd be shocked if that was, if it came, if that I, 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 I saw, I saw zero votes for mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, no, no, no one was buying that. Right. But, um, so Justice Alito uh, weighs in on this. And we haven't heard from him yet. I think he's one of the smartest lawyers I know. He happens to be someone I, I personally hold in very high regard, and he's asking some really, really smart questions here. I'll, I'll try to unpack them. He starts out with a different um, a, a starting point than, than I do. He, he starts out much more sympathetic to ISL, so I'm going to try to you know, hear, and I want you, audience members, to listen carefully to what he's asking, and then I'll try to tell you what I think the right answer is, as opposed to what some of the answers that the litigants gave, which was pretty good, but not quite the, the answer that I would have given to my friend Justice Alito. And I will say that, uh, you know, if you've read newspaper coverage of the oral argument or magazine coverage, you probably have not read, you know, really smart coverage of this series of questions. So I would encourage you to, to take advantage of the fact that Professor Moore is an expert on this. Justice Alito? I was asking some questions earlier about instances in which it is necessary for a federal court in applying federal law to delve into the meaning of state law. 
And while federal courts generally take state law to be whatever the state Supreme Court says it is, there are instances where that is not the rule. And I mentioned one. Uh, Put aside for a moment your distinction between a state constitution and a state statute. Whether, Whether a rule invoked by the state Supreme Court is an adequate rule in deciding whether there's an adequate and independent state ground for a uh, for a, a rule that the, the state Supreme Court applies, right? That's an instance of that. Correct. All right. How about the contract clause? Whether the, was there a violation of the contract clause? Doesn't the court have to determine whether there really was a contract under the law of the state at the time when the contract in question was formed? Right. We don't doubt that. It's just under a very deferential standard review. We're not disagreeing. What about the takings clause? Was there a taking of property? Property is defined by state law, but what if the state Supreme Court says this thing is not property? Does that answer the federal question? Again, not, not, you know, yes. We think all of those are examples of this court looks into it. Here, of course, we're talking about state constitutions being interpreted by state courts. It's a little different than these scenarios. What about if there's along the same lines? What if there is a claim that there was a deprivation of property? Once again, property is primarily defined by state law, but does the state Supreme Court have free reign to say, no, there was no deprivation because there was no property. So the the state court does, under its own processes, depending on the text and the history in that state, which differs from state to state for reasons Judge Sutton says, and this is the same answer I've given to Justice Thomas, we don't doubt that there is some review by this court in the most extreme circumstances. It's just that the standard is incredibly high. Okay, so this is an audacious podcast. Call the Marcus Constitution because Akilamar actually thinks he knows something about the Constitution that the rest of the world can, can benefit from, thanks to um, Andy Lipka's creation of the whole enterprise, very gentle but firm guidance. So I'm going to be really straight here. This is really technical stuff, but it's hugely important, and I think I'm the world's expert on it. I was hired by Yale at the age of 26 to teach federal courts. That's what this is all about, federal jurisdiction, and which is about the relation between state and federal law and the relation between state and federal courts. And it's very technical, but this is actually what I got hired to teach and what I used to teach every year again and again and again. And I want to unpack it because I think Justice Alito has a point, but he misunderstands actually the key differences between some of his hypotheticals and the facts here. And my friend Neil Katyal, who is a great scholar, doesn't teach Fed courts, actually. And although he was my student, he wasn't my Fed court student. And and he's always complained, Akil, I would have learned federal courts better if I'd been able to take it from you. So let me just take a big breath, big step back, and tell you what federal courts is all about. This is an entire semester in a course that basically revolves around two fundamental truths, two or three. Truth one, state courts in general are the definitive interpreters of state law and federal courts in general, including, of course, um, headed by the Supreme Court, are the definitive interpreters of federal law. That's the first proposition. Um, And Justice Alito actually tipped his hat to the, uh, the general proposition that state courts decide state law. So that's proposition one. Proposition two. In any given transaction in the world, it is often the case 
that there are state law elements and federal law elements. They're kind of connected in certain ways, jumbled together in certain contexts. So yeah, state courts are the, the master of state law and federal courts are the master of federal law. That's the first proposition. And yet um, state and federal law are often connected uh, or related um, in, in all sorts of cases and controversies, factual transactions, most of them actually in our world. Ours is a genuinely federal system. Third proposition, the relation between state and federal law in any given situation will vary. And I can give you very subcategories. Then the particular nature of that relationship will determine in part what deference federal courts and owe to state court interpretations of putative state law. So three things. Federal courts are expert on federal law, state courts on state law. State and federal law get jumbled up in the real world and connected in all sorts of ways. And the precise ways in which they're connected will actually and must do all the work in the analysis. And that's what you didn't quite hear from Neil. So here are the the examples that Sam Alito used. And one of them is actually a version of a case called Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, which was uh, which is what I wrote about as a law student. I got my piece published in a law review, and that's what I was actually I was hired at Yale on the basis of that article. Okay, so here's what Martin versus Hunter's Lessee is about, and I'll give you his other examples. In Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, there was a federal treaty between the United States and Britain to basically end the Revolutionary War, and the United States says to Britain. Okay, some states have confiscated various property from British subjects, um, and they've used that money to pay for the war. And we promise from this date forward, states will stop confiscating. Okay, that's what the treaty says. And now it's years later, and, and British subjects are complaining, actually, that the states have continued to confiscate. And the states in state court say, oh, no, we're not. We, the date as to which the confiscation was final in this situation, that one, was before the treaty. But you can't – but the U.S. Supreme Court said not so fast. And this is a matter of state law, when, when the confiscation actually happened, when it was judicially finalized um, under um, very state law processes. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, no, we're going to have to – look at that ourselves, even though it seems like a state law issue, because federal treaty rights actually pivot on rest upon this state law determination or state factual determination. So we can't allow a set of treaty rights that are rights actually against state governments to be manipulated by state courts, which are organs of state government, to the frustration of the federal treaty interest. So we're going to have to second-guess that in some situations. That's a case called Martin versus Henry's Lessee, and it's absolutely at the heart of my very first article as a law, um, even before I was a law professor, was, was hired to teach. And our audience will know that that case is central to my chapter on John Marshall and Joseph's story in um, the book, The Words That Made Us, because uh, I haven't plugged the book in the last 30 seconds. So that's one of the three situations that um, Justice Alito was gesturing towards. So just from a layman's point of view, so they, basically it's denying the state courts the home field advantage, right? Or saying that, you know, we're going to just decide in, in favor of our state, you know. Uh, Correct. And, and Cause, the cause, federal cause government judges, needs, needs to be able to 
to right because those judges are paid by the state government mm-hmm. that wants to confiscate okay and, and these are treaty rights against the state and there's a federal interest because if virginia can do this this was from virginia then that's going to actually annoy the brits and they're going to take it out on on New York and Massachusetts and Connecticut, in, bluntly, on the United States. So, because they're going to use that treaty violation by Virginia as an excuse for not carrying out their end of the treaty, and, and which raises all sorts of national security considerations. And you can't trust the Virginia courts with all those national security interests. That's what federal courts are all about. That's Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, and that's what I explain actually in some detail in the words that made us. Uh, passages that I wrote, the audience needs to know, way before Moore versus Harper was a gleam in anyone's eye. He gave two other examples, and they have the same logical structure, because I, as a federal courts teacher, am showing you, in a, in a famous phrase, about talking about the relation between state and federal law, which is different in different situations. This is a very famous article in 1954, Columbia Law Review, by the great Henry Hart, who wrote the, the great uh, casebook called Hart and Wexler, which is more cited by the Supreme Court than any other casebook. Here are two other examples, and Justice Alito mentioned these very explicitly. One is the Contracts Clause. The contract clause is in a part of the Constitution that begins no it's Article One, Section Ten. It's a precursor to the Fourteenth Amendment. It begins no state shall impair the obligation of contracts. And that clause has come to be read to mean a state, even when it's a contracting party, is bound and it can't impair the, the obligation, the contractual commitments that it itself has made as a contracting party. It can't quite renege. It's a no-take-back idea. You don't have to make a contract to begin with as a state. But once you do, you, you can't impair it by basically refusing the obligations that you've contractually undertaken. Now, here's the rub. Ordinarily, whether there's a valid contract to begin with, that's actually a question typically of state law. Do you have, this is Contracts 101, this is Professor Kingsfield and Hart, this is offer, acceptance, consideration, okay, the burn and hairy hand, they're just like, you know, um, was there contractual capacity of the, the two parties? Um, was there a proper offer? Was there acceptance? Was there consideration? You know, um, did it have the proper form? Um, some contracts need to be in writing, and there's a thing called, you know, the, the statute of fraud. There's another thing called the peril evidence rule. I'm not going to teach a whole course on contract law here, but I'm telling you, contract law, even today, is overwhelmingly state law. But here's Justice Leto's point. You can't allow state courts, which are paid by the state government, to basically frustrate a federal constitutional right against states by saying, aha, there was no impairment of the obligation of contract because we, the state court, find that there was no contract to begin with. If they are, in, in so doing, manipulating state contract law in order to um, weasel out of, of the contract, in order to avoid their federal constitutional obligation. So there's another situation where the nature of the relation between state and federal law here, a federal rights that are presupposing state law interests, sitting atop uh, antecedent state law ingredients, of course the federal courts are going to have to be able to second-guess a state court if they think there's manipulation going on 
And how are they going to decide whether there's manipulation going on? They're going to look at whether this state court ruling is consistent with state court rulings that were on the books before the contract was made. In other situations, not involving, for example, the state as a contracting party, there are a whole bunch of, of, of techniques that federal courts use to avoid creating just their own federal law of contract from start to finish. But we have to we have to keep an eye on state courts, which are parts of state governments, which are the entity against which the federal right exists. Now, Can you give an third, example of that? Like, is that Dartmouth College or something? Or uh... The example of that is it's almost identical to Martin versus Tennessee. <coughs> the, the relevant case, if you're interested in the case, is called Ward versus Love County. And it's discussed actually in the article that Vic and I wrote, um, where we're building on, we're responding to an article by Henry Monahan. Um, who was a disciple of Hart and Wexler's in the Columbia Law Review. In our brief, we just refer the uh, amicus brief, the justices and their clerks, to the relevant pages of the article in the Supreme Court Review, where we actually go through this in some detail in a key footnote. Okay. So I told you one case was uh, um, Martin versus Angeles Lee. Another one is a case called Ward versus Love County. Here's a third and related example. And you see, Akhil is just giving you three examples through three different federal rights. One was a treaty right, the treaty between the United States and Great Britain uh, ending the Revolutionary War. A second, the War of American Independence, was Article 1, Section 10, the Contract Clause, which is a right against the states. A third is the Takings Clause. Now, the takings clause today, or I, I could make it the, the due process clause, but either way. Um, originally, the takings clause limited only the federal government. But as our audience knows, thanks to Hugo Black and others, that takings clause right now applies against states and localities. So no state or locality can take private property for government purposes, public purposes, to build a fort or a dam or a park or a road whatever. No state can, can do that without paying just compensation to the property owner. That's a federal right against the state, thanks to the 14th Amendment that has the same words, no state shall make or enforce any law which will abridge fundamental freedoms, which include the right of just compensation. So it's the same kind of language as in Article 1, Section 10. Now this is after the Civil War. Now, obviously, you can't allow a state court to manipulate. But what counts as property to begin with. Ordinarily, that's a state law issue. My title to my house, my title to my weekend retreat, these are registered in local governments and protected by state law. I have a deed and, and it's, it's basically certified by states and localities. So here's the point. If the government's tomorrow of Connecticut tried to take my home for a, a park and said, we're not going to pay. And then I said, but you, you need to pay me just compensation. You can take it, but that, you have to pay me fair price. And they say, and the state court says, oh, no, Akil, because we decide that you didn't really have a property interest to begin with. Ha, ha, ha. And I say, well, wait a minute. You just made that up. That's, that's utterly inconsistent with all the, the property rules that apply everywhere else where the government isn't trying to grab something from me. Now, this is closer to Dartmouth College. You see the Dartmouth College case that, that um, uh, you, you asked about. No, they can't do that. So the federal courts are going to have to monitor state courts to make sure they're not cheating and manipulating by completely misinterpreting a state law ingredient 
on which a federal right rests, a federal right against the state itself. I could have done the same analysis if the question isn't just, is just compensation owed because there's a property right, but is fair procedure owed? Uh, Even uh, under the 14th Amendment, there's another clause that says no state can deny um, anyone of life, liberty, or property without fair procedures, due process. Now, maybe the state didn't give me life. You know, my parents did and God did, you know. And maybe the state didn't give me, you know, liberty quite. Again, that's God-given. But property isn't quite that way. It's, it's created by state law, and we have to prevent state courts from manipulating state law ingredients that are the basis of federal rights against the state. Now, here's my final point. That's not remotely the situation in ISL. There isn't anything like that relation between state and federal law. So far as the U.S. Constitution is concerned, a state constitution, if it wanted to, could have given everything to the state court and said, you have carte blanche to do everything. You're the relevant legislature here. So there really isn't a strong federal interest here that's being frustrated if there's a very robust role for state courts. So it's much, much more like, and here's what the standard of review, Justice Alito, should be. Has the state court here acted in such a way that it's just not a court at all, it's utterly lawless, so much as to basically violate the basic ideas of the rule of law and and due process of law? And here's one way to ask the question. Suppose this had been a state election. I'm not a federal election. And the state Supreme Court came up with, you know, all sorts of of interpretations of the state constitution. Would you get involved? And you should only get involved if what the state court has done is so egregious as to basically be utterly, utterly lawless, such that it would violate due process of law, even if it were a state election. And the reason, by the way, Justice Alito, that that's the right standard and nothing else is if you have a different standard of review because it's a federal election, a congressional election, it's going to be crazy because the same election is going to be governed by state Supreme Court rulings um, for the state election part of the event and U.S. Supreme Court rulings for the, the federal election part of the event. What do I mean? I mean rules like when do you apply for an absentee ballot? When do you have to submit an absentee ballot? You know, do you have to sign an absentee ballot? Do you need to countersign an absentee ballot? Must there be a witness to an absentee ballot? Where can you drop off an absentee ballot? Or what excuses are, are permissible for, for casting absentee ballots or is it just a, as a matter of right? Which polling place do you vote on on election day? When does the polling place open? When does it close? You can't have different rules for all of that. The state constitution gets to uh, regulate all of that when it comes to state elections for state senate, for state assembly, for governor, for city council, for dog catcher. And it makes no sense at all for there to be different rules for the federal election part of it, the congressional election, presidential election, and for the state election. And so the only standard of review, Justice Alito, that makes sense here is just the due process standard that you would apply even if it weren't a federal election but a mere state election. That's it. And some of the other justices actually – and that's what uh, Vic and Steve and I said in our amicus brief 
And Vic and I said in our Supreme Court review piece, and now, Andy, I know you have some other clips from other justices, some of whom are going to talk about the due process test, and some of the lawyers are going to offer different tests, and I'm going to say, actually, they were too deferential to the justices who don't want to hear that this is basically, you know, not quite their business. It's really state courts that should be deciding this, except in the most extreme situations where we could say that what the state court has done is utterly lawless, so lawless that we would intervene even in a state election. We, the Supreme Court. I've asked you before in other episodes, like what actually is due process? Um, Fair procedures, notice, general, uh, the rule of law. So I'll give you examples of what wouldn't be due process, what would be, you know, utterly lawless. And the interests are going to be at their peak when the government is using its vast coercive power to punish an an individual, to harm an individual. So the state statute says that my taxes, state taxes, are due on uh, January 15th, and I file on January 15th. And they say, by the way, and if you're late, you'll be, uh, there'll be a 10% penalty. And imagine state court, utterly lawless, say, because they don't like Akeel. Um, and, and they never did this for anyone else, but they don't like Akeel. So they said, oh, actually, in this unique situation, we determine that January 15th actually means January 1st. And he was 14 days late. Now, if you told me that in advance, I would have gotten in on January 1st. But why does January 15th mean January 1st? Because actually under the Gregorian calendar, you know, of of the Middle Ages, actually um, what we call January 15th was January 1st or something like that. And and that's what they really meant because Kiel is an originalist and, um, and so the Gregorian calendar should apply to him. And even though they said it's a, certa, um, a, a penalty, what did I say, 10%? Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, but 10% means not 10% of the taxes owed, um, even though that's how... 10% has always been interpreted in every other tax case in, in the jurisdiction forever. It means 10% of his net worth. Okay. So at a certain point, this would be a, a, such a gross violation of rule of law values, which are as follows. You can have all sorts of laws, but you need to tell me in advance what the rules are so I can conform my conduct to the rules, when my taxes are due, and if I don't pay, you know, how much of a penalty am I going to incur? So just tell me in advance. They have to be prospective. See, but the court ruling would purport to apply to what has already happened, and they have to be general. They shouldn't just be rules for appeal, but for everyone. So due process, fair procedures are basically about um, fundamental rule of law values of generality and prospectivity fair notice to citizens so i asked the same question of my friend woody allen and uh (laughs) and he uh he he had uh some suggestions these turn out not to be violations of due process and i'll tell you why i'll tell you why in a minute but they're close from this day on the official language of san marcos will be swedish silence In addition to that, all citizens will be required to change their underwear every half hour. Underwear 
board on the outside so we can check. Furthermore, all children under 16 years old are now 16 years old. What's the Spanish word for straitjacket? Power has driven him mad. Okay, and as preposterous as all that was, that was still less bad than my hypothetical because it was in advance. They're telling us from now on we have to wear our underwear, change it every half hour and wear it on the outside and, and speak Swedish and all the rest. But imagine if they said, oh, that's what the law always was. Yes, the, the statute says English, but we're interpreting that as Swedish. And since you didn't actually speak Swedish, we're going to punish you for that. And even if there was no way that I could have ever anticipated that, given all the previous cases and, and, and interpretations, because of that, that would be a due process violation if, if a court purported to do that retrospectively without any a fair notice in any of the of the words of the statute or any other relevant legal materials like pre-existing cases. Well, I would submit that you come up with a new standard for the word deferential by saying that that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, if it's not okay, it's not okay not for procedural due process reasons, but because they're um, substantive, fundamental, unenumerated rights to wear your underwear under your outerwear. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and, no, and that's Glucksburg, because no state has ever done otherwise. So, so we've talked about how there are unenumerated rights to, to wear a hat and to play the fiddle and to have a pet dog, but that's not procedural due process. And here I'm, I'm saying the relevant test is a procedural due process test. Okay, so some of the justices picked up on this theme. Um, so let's hear what they have to say. And you don't take quarrel with the fact that a state could interpret a state constitution in a way that violates the federal constitution. That's what they're arguing here. But Right. No, we don't doubt that. It's just under, as we were talking about, that stratospheric standard of review, because it's ne to my knowledge, it's never really happened by this court. And I think Bush versus Pound Beach Canvassing Board says it's got to be the highest standard, higher than Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion in Bush versus Well, I, I thought of those cases as basically saying that there was a due, federal due process problem if an interpretation violates due process in some way. Correct. There's a novelty concern, particularly in the criminal context. Right. You heard me agree that in a criminal context, when you are being punished for behavior in the past, you can't change now, when they gave you no clear notice in advance that the conduct that you were engaging in um, was, was punishable, that's where we need f uh, federal oversight. But here there's nothing like that. And yeah. so, so Justice Sotomayor is channeling our amicus brief, and actually, I'm not sure she's she's picking up on uh, Neil's brief or Verrilli's brief or Prologger's brief. I haven't read them all, uh, reread them recently, but I'm not sure they said actually it's a due process test. But I know that's what Vic and Steve and I said. So Justice Sotomayor there is saying is not only saying that it's a due process test, she's also saying that in the Palm Beach and, and, and Bush versus Gore cases, that it was also a due process test. I'm not sure if Justice Rehnquist would agree with that, but that's her interpretation of it, she said. Well, it should have been, whether it was or not, but she, and if it weren't, it would be wrong, and 
again, big shout out to Justice Sotomayor on this one. I'm totally with her. I think the relevant standard of review is the due process standard of review and not the one that Justice Alito invoked in talking about takings clause as applied to the against state governments or contracts clause as applied against state governments or treaty rights as applied against state governments, federal treaty rights. Question about about Justice Alito's comment. Um, so, okay, uh, under your explanation, there's a federal interest that uh, needs to be protected in the contracts clause. There's a federal interest that needs to be protected in the takings clause. What interest? Now you're saying there's no federal interest that needs to be protected as a result of the elections clause, right? So he would seem to be implying that there were was. What might right. it be? Well, I can't prove the negative. So Justice Alito, I hope you listen to this podcast, you know, because I'm watching and I tell all my friends that you're a principled person and a smart person. So you're going to have to identify it with great clarity. It's possible I, I've missed it, but I don't see it, and you're going to have to identify it. Otherwise, with all due respect you should not be actually sticking the judicial nose in here. That would not be consistent with your own ideals of, you know, proper federal judicial restraint. Okay, and Justice Kavanaugh picked up on this as well. Justice Kavanaugh? I just want to follow up on your discussion with Justice Kagan and uh, pages 48 to 50 of your brief and pages 26 to 28 of the Solicitor General's brief on the on the Rehnquist concurrence uh, there. And I think you said uh, uh, state court, a check to uh, prevent state court judicial adventurism, uh, I think was your phrase, or to ensure that state courts don't manipulate state law to frustrate federal rights. And as Justice Alito pointed out, there are civil rights due process cases, treaty clause, contract clause, adequate and independent state ground. We had a few weeks ago uh, that kind of issue. And I, I read... Uh, Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Bush v. Gore to actually accept the principle, or at least not dispute the principle, although she, of course, vigorously disputed the application of that principle uh, in that case. What I said and earlier and, and what I, I, I've written before, you have to make sure that the state courts don't manipulate state law to frustrate federal rights, but then you need to identify what the federal right at issue is and why you, you have reason to suspect state court manipulation. And once you reject Justice Gorsuch's idea that the, that the federal constitution endows some special magical uh, authority in what he calls the state legislature, the flat-footed state legislature, once you reject that, then there really isn't much of a federal interest, you see. It's no different than if the constitution basically said states can pick, um, can regulate congressional uh, districts, uh, congressional elections. Um, and if they said states, then states can do it. However, states do it, you, you, you see. So I don't see where there was the manipulation of a state law interest to frustrate a federal right. But Justice Kavanaugh got it just right. That is the, the, the proper question to ask. But then you need to identify for me, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Alito, because I don't think you, especially Justice Kavanaugh, I don't think you quite are on board with Justice Gorsuch's idea about what the legislature is and isn't. You need to identify what's the federal right here that's being frustrated. And you need to do so with clarity, because I believe I just did that in the treaty context, Martin Bersenner's Lestee, and the takings clause context, and the contract clause context. You need to do something with comparable clarity. And 
Maybe you see it. I haven't seen it yet, and I can't prove the negative. But you must prove, Justice Alito, the affirmative if you're going to actually second-guess a state court on meaning of state law. And one final point, and we're going to hear this, I think, in some of the other clips, state courts are allowed to have different understandings of interpretive methods. Um, so state law not only can deviate from federal law in substance, but also in interpretive method. Even if the Supreme Court wants to be textual in its understanding of its constitution, hypertextual or what have you, state courts need not treat their state constitutions the same way. They're allowed to have their own methods of interpretation as long as they're kind of consistent and don't violate these um, rule of law values. That they, When it comes to the case that Akil brings before them because they don't like Akil, they completely change all, all the interpretive understandings. Okay, so we've, you know, now we've established uh, your sense of the proper line here, the due, pro- the due process violation. That would be the right. standard by which um, a federal we'll put, court we'll put, might step yeah. in. Or put differently, just basic rule of law. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hypotheticals that I was giving are going to be, they're very unusual because American courts are not corrupt in general, state and federal. But you know, you could imagine in, in some hypothetical, maybe because I, let's imagine I was a critic of the state judges, um, an outspoken critic, and then they get a case involving me as a arguably delinquent taxpayer or what have you, and they're just making things up utterly in order to to punish me because they don't like me. That communist China stuff, that's procedural due process rule of law. Because ordinarily, we presume, remember, this was the first of the three basic principles, precepts of federal courts. Of course, that first principle is ordinarily state courts are the last word on the meaning of state law. Now, why was why is there even this limit? Because there is a federal constitution, and it says states have to actually obey due process as a federal rule. They can't deprive their even their own state citizens, who are also U.S. citizens. The Fourteenth Amendment says they can't deprive even their own state citizens of life, liberty, or property without fair procedures, without the rule of law. That's the federal interest, the due process or But to repeat, that federal interest would apply even if it were um, a state election and not a federal election. And that's why, and, and the standards should be the same, we argue in our amicus brief, whether it's a state or federal election. Because we don't see the word legislature in Article One, with all due respect to Justice Gorsuch, as creating some strong federal interest of, of any sort requiring oversight of the state courts because the state courts are part of the legislature in North Carolina once you understand Justice Jackson. So we're going to play some clips in a minute um, that show the advocates and the justice sort of struggling with finding out, with defining a line uh, as to when federal courts should step in and when when they shouldn't. And, And with all due respect, they're struggling because they didn't read our amicus brief perhaps you know as clearly because one of the specific questions we ask in the amicus brief actually is what's the federal standard of review here and and we take just one page and we refer the reader to more pages and footnotes in the supreme court review piece that discusses this in more detail building on henry monahan building on hart and wexler and it's an entire chapter of hart and wexler it takes me 2 weeks every year to actually explain all this stuff to my students 
and, and our audience is getting it in 10 minutes. Well, I think one of the reasons that they're struggling with it is, is related to this normalization of, of Bush v. Gore, because they're right. saying, oh, Bush versus Gore and even Palm Beach, you know, established that there is a federal interest. And so we have to say, oh, did they, you know, right. meet this standard of federal interest? And, right. and I think that the due process standard is so much clearer. So can you give me, and then Elena Kagan, Justice Kagan picked up on this. She says, that's the kind of thing that justices say all the right. time, that courts are yeah, acting well, like legislatures. Yeah. Okay. And so can you give me some examples or an example of something where the justices might be tempted to step in because they don't like it or something like that, but it would be inappropriate. Anything short. A state constitution says free and fair elections, and if you were the state Supreme Court justice, you would say this seems pretty fair to me, but the state Supreme Court says we just don't think that's fair. We think, for example, that partisan gerrymandering is unfair. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, well, we don't think it's unfair. And the answer is, you didn't think it was unfair under the federal constitution, but it's not ridiculous for someone to think that it might be unfair under the state constitution. And indeed, several justices at the U.S. Supreme Court in Rucho thought partisanship should be improper when Congress engages in it in creating various districts. But a state is permitted um, state Supreme Court justices to have its own understandings of fairness. So and it would be not acting as a court just because it had a different understanding of fairness or because it was less textual than you might be when dealing with your parent constitution. That is, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with the federal constitution. Okay. Right. And again, it comes back in, in the end to the idea that state courts are the experts but, but, on state constitutions. But, 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 but tr yes, and, and truthfully, justices, uh, she was not actually critiquing my standards. She was critiquing Verrilli's and other standards that were different. Justices very, very rarely accuse ju um, other justices of being utterly lawless. They, they say something slightly different than that. And they don't even say the court is not acting like a court, because if it's not acting like a court, it doesn't have jurisdiction. They don't say stuff like that. They might say it's acting like a legislature. Yeah, that's what, that, that, was, that was what she said, that they're acting right. like a legislature. But so, right. And sometimes courts do get to act like legislatures. State courts, for example, make common law, and common law is kind of legislative in nature. So her critique was of other standards, not of my very, very narrow rules about due oh, yes. process. No, I agree. I mean, she was worried that that a standard that was too loose would, would wind up being applied all the time. Yes, so. and, and I worry about that too. And my point is it can't be a different standard than you would apply, than the Supreme Court would apply for a state election. So I'm actually telling them very, very concretely kind of what this means. It's not just some abstract thing. If the U.S. Supreme Court ever tries to strike down a state Supreme Court rule about congressional elections, it has to be willing to do the same thing on the very facts of that case for the rest of the election, that is the state election, um, a party election. And, and that is going to be a very chastening, and that requirement that if they're going to do the one thing, they have to be willing to do the other is going to really limit their temptation to, to jump in needlessly. It's another benefit of that standard, aside from the fact yes. that... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so... It's going to force them, if, if they want to do this, they're going to need to go whole hog and explain to the world why they are 
the more faithful interpreters of the North Carolina Constitution than North Carolina judges. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so, and so let's hear some of the discussions among the uh, the attorneys and the justices on this uh, on this question. Mr. Varelli, uh, the how far would you go with that? There's been some uh, discussion about uh, we can only review state courts. Um, at a sky-high level or a stratospheric level. or uh, we, we ran into a similar problem with that in Bush v. Gore. Uh, at, how would you articulate our review standard? Yes, Justice Thomas, I, I appreciate the opportunity to do so. And let me just try to articulate what we think a, a clear, correct standard is. Uh, and uh, we think the standard is that you'd ask whether the state decision is such a sharp departure from the state's ordinary modes of constitutional interpretation that it lacks any fair and substantial basis in state law. We think that is actually the best distillation of the kinds of tests that were um, identified in the Bush v. Gore concurrence as being potentially relevant. Now, I will say that we think that's a highly deferential test. We think also it has to be — it's of vital importance to recognize that states can have different modes of constitutional interpretation than this Court has with respect to the federal Constitution, and those have to be respected. Um, but, and then, you know, I think probably the, the line in Bush v. Gore and the concurrence that best sums it up is that um, does, it, uh, does the state court decision impermissibly distort beyond any fair reading uh, the state law? So we, we think that's the, the operative test here. Again, highly deferential have to respect the way in which state courts go about constitutional interpretation. But I think that's the test. And if I, if I could build on that, I think, Mr. Chief Justice, that is the answer, actually, to the question that Your Honor raised about vague and general provisions. What my friends on the other side have said is those are categorically unenforceable, They're categorically unenforceable under the Elections Clause. That just can't be right. Um, there's no textual basis for that. And as a jurisprudential matter, uh, the, the federal constitution, of course, has vague and general provisions, and no one requires that level of specificity before they can be uh, enforced uh, in, in the elections context. So I like some of that. I like the fact that he is teeing up and smacking down another thing that the petitioner said. They said, oh, procedure substance, and, and they, they had other, um, I think, outlandish ideas. But one is, oh, um, vague constitutional, uh, state constitutional provisions are different than uh, clear ones. And he said, no, that can't be right. And vague language like you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal, free and fair elections. <laughs> that, that vague language goes all the way back to the founders. What are you talking about? Uh, the federal constitution is filled with it. No one thinks that federal uh, courts can't enforce mm-hmm. the vague language of the federal constitution. So I liked that. Well done. Um, I like that he actually said you have to let state judges follow interpretive methods that they get to choose because you can't impose that on state courts. So I liked that. What I didn't love is that he was kind of normalizing Chief Justice Rehnquist's approach in Bush versus Gore because in Bush versus Gore, Chief Justice Rehnquist actually applied a test to this what the state courts had done in that case, and he was disregarding what the state courts had done in that case, and he was wrong to do so. But the advocates don't want to say Chief Justice Rehnquist was wrong in that case. They don't want to say that to the person who clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist, John Roberts. They don't want to say that to 
the person who joined Chief Justice Rehnquist, Clarence Thomas, they don't want to say that to two lawyers who were on the ground in Florida, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. But I don't litigate before the Supreme Court regularly. You know, my livelihood doesn't depend on this. Clients won't, you know, refuse to, to hire me because the justices hate me. The most they can do is stop citing me. And of course, that's that's their prerogative. I have life tenure, too. And no, I want to say that Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion was, not, which is not binding at all, it was just three judges, it was not actually the, the, the one truthfully to be followed in his defense. And, and he was disregarding what the state, Florida State Supreme Court justices had done. And they were right and they were doing what they had done years before Bush versus Gore. They were completely consistent in method and substance. Now, they were relying on state constitutions and reading state statutes in light of state constitutions, and they're allowed to do that. Justice Gorsuch doesn't understand that because he thinks legislature means legislature free-floating, but no, they're allowed to do that. And what looked weird to Chief Justice Rehnquist was the fact that they weren't just looking at the state statute, but the state statutes in Florida in light of the Florida state constitution, but that's because Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist didn't understand, actually, the importance of the state constitution, which almost all the justices, with the possible exception of Gorsuch, do in this case. Now, in fairness to Chief Justice Rehnquist, here's why he didn't understand some of that, because they were deciding things very quickly. The lawyers didn't actually brief the case very well, and the Florida Supreme Court was not entirely clear about what it was doing and why. So I understand why he goofed, but he goofed, and we need to call goofs goofs. We need to call goofs goofs when the liberals goof, like Roe versus Wade. And I was with Sam Alito saying that was egregiously wrong. But now I'm with the liberals saying, in fact, Bush versus Gore on its facts. Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion was actually not the right standard. It was the wrong standard. And I know, to repeat, that that was joined by Clarence Thomas and that four of the uh, and the three of the other justices were kind of um, on the ground as lawyers on on team bush but uh, so i thought former general verley made some very good points but again he's a little too deferential and i understand why because it's you know the, the rank was court revisited i i get that but in this podcast i'm going to try to be totally straight with the audience and with the justices and the clerks and tell them what the litigants didn't quite tell them, but what I think they need to hear from someone who honestly sees himself as a friend of the court, an amicus in the truest sense, and of the justices. I want them to get this right because I tell you, my friends on the court, if you get this wrong, it's going to be so hard for me year after year to persuade my students that there's this thing called law. And, and, and that you're not politicians in robes. I don't think you are. So that's why I'm actually telling you that it would be a mistake, actually, to go down some of these paths that might, might seem paths of, of least resistance, but aren't the paths of principle. Yeah, I think we've seen in the past that uh, you, can, you can screw up the law if you... Uh, if if you do what seems to be a middle ground or something like that, but if you do something that you know is not exactly right, trimester. So some people are pro-choice and some people are pro-life. So let's actually come up with some gobbledygook thing called trimesters. That's just like procedure versus substance. You see, that's a gobbledygook bullshit. You know, that's just like oh, vague provisions are different from specific ones, and supreme state supreme courts can enforce specific ones but not vague ones. You're just pulling that out of your ass. Um, petitioners, just like 
Gary Blackman pulled stuff out of his ass in Roe, and I was critical of that as the principal liberals have been critical of that. Um, so here I'm, do, I'm giving tough love to the conservatives, whereas you know before I gave tough love to the liberals. Okay, so here's some more discussion on this question. Um, here's uh, Chief Justice Roberts. You know, we played a, a clip from him in the first episode where he came out uh, firing uh, at petitioners, uh, I would say. Here, uh, maybe a little bit less so. Well, if I could, I don't mean to interrupt. I guess I do mean to interrupt. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) the way you phrased it is exactly, I guess, where the argument this morning has mostly gone. You say the ordinary restraints. And I think that's what Chief Justice Rehnquist was trying to get at. That's what you — whatever standard you want to say, whether it's ordinary or, you know, once in a blue moon, uh, uh, you're saying that that is the question. Is what the state is doing, which has the impact on the federal constitutional authority given to the legislature, ordinary or outrageous or however you want to to say it? So you do accept the proposition that there is a role for this court in particular, to assess whether or not how that conflict is worked out in a particular case. I do acknowledge that, but I would emphasize in trying to think about this both from a legal standpoint and, if I could, from a practical standpoint, that I would think the court would want to make clear that this is a very deferential standard. It is not the ordinary case where the court is second-guessing a state court's interpretation of its own state law. Usually, the court treats the state courts as conclusive expositors of state law because they have way more institutional competence in their own methodologies, which of course may differ from the methodologies this court would deploy with respect to the federal constitution, and they have a lot more familiarity with the content of their state law. So I think to situate this kind of test within this court's broader doctrine in this area, it would be necessary to recognize that this is not just about thinking that the state court might have gotten it wrong or or even very wrong, but rather trying to identify the narrow circumstances where the court can't properly be understood to be conducting judicial review in the first place. It's not acting like a court, because that is the kind of thing that would then seize the legislature's policymaking power and be understood to transgress the elections clause. And just a quick note on the practical point. Any, I think, lesser rule in this context would invite constant challenges brought in federal courts seeking to relitigate these state law issues, often in the midst of these elections as they're unfolding on the ground. And I think it would be important to try to put a check on that type of second bite at the apple that litigants would otherwise try to obtain. I think that's pretty good. I would go further and and say it more clearly. I would say it's not about legislature and it's not about the elections clause. It's about the rule of law and due process. I'm glad that she said states are allowed to have different methodologies. As long as they're consistent about that, they're not making up new methods for this case that they didn't apply last year and the year before that. We have to be very deferential. We, the federal judges, the, the Supreme Court, she mentioned that state courts are more likely to be expert on the meaning of state law. Yes. Here's another thing. If the state courts screw up, if they madly misinterpret state law, they can be thrown out by the people of North Carolina. And in fact, some of the justices in North Carolina, uh, the state Supreme Court, were thrown out last month in in the election. And that check does not exist against the U.S. Supreme Court. The people of North Carolina have no recourse if Justice Gorsuch or Justice Alito or Justice Thomas or any of them badly misinterpret North Carolina uh, state constitutional law. 
what's their recourse against the justices in Washington, D.C.? They, they, they have none. So even the chief there sounded a little too Gorsuchian in, in sort of focusing on legislature and the elections clause rather than just um, rule of law due process more generally. And finally, Justice Sotomayor, whom we heard from before, had some other comments on this. Justice Sotomayor? Uh, In fairness to petitioner, I think that what they're trying to say when they draw this procedural substantive line or this um, other line of open-ended or specific constitutional provisions, that they're trying to articulate, maybe inarticulately, but (laughs) articulate that we have to reach the question of how when does the federal constitutional provision spring up? Um, Meaning, at what point has a court acted not as in judicial review, but in legislating? And so how would you, and I think Mr. Verrilli gave us a line. What's your line? How would you articulate it? So I'm happy to give you a line. I'll just say that I don't actually understand them to to try to conflate those two arguments. I think that they are trying to make a sweeping argument here that even if the court is acting like a court and faithfully engaged in the process of judicial review, they would nevertheless invalidate any number of constitutional provisions around the states and say those are unenforceable through the I, I, I agree with you. That's what they're trying to say. Yes. So, but just to, to try to be responsive to your question about a standard, we think that there are obviously multiple formulations that have been offered and are available to the court, but we think the closest analog to try to track this problem I've described of when a court is not faithfully engaged in judicial review is to borrow from the adequate and independent state grounds context, and specifically the civil rights cases, where the court has said that if the state court decision is so lacking in any basis and has no fair or substantial support and can only be understood as an effort to frustrate federal rights, then the court can look past that decision. And again, we think that this is a high bar. It's not testing for exactly the same thing, because in that context, novelty might be important, for example, if you're surprising a civil rights plaintiff to try to deny a federal forum. Here, we don't think that novelty would carry much weight in the analysis. But we do think that formulation of lacking any fair or substantial support with deference shown to the state's own methodologies and its constitutional interpretation is trying to get at the same idea of when the court is actually abdicating its judicial role and instead claiming raw policymaking power. Well, again, that's pretty good. And she does, but she's conflating two things, situations where State courts are frustrating federal rights, uh, like in the takings clause context or the contracts clause context or the treaty clause context, rights against the state and situations where you don't have that. Here you don't have that unless you start with the Gorsuchian idea that's supposed to, that there is a federal interest in protecting the legislature defined flat-footedly against other branches of the state government, no matter what the state constitution uh, provides. So I'm um, not quite what I would have, have said, but, but moving in the right direction. So we started this coverage last week talking about the experience of going to the, the court, what it was like, the physical facility and the atmosphere. So Andy, one postscript on um, that, on, on the building itself and our visit to the building because we're sticklers in this podcast for getting everything exactly right, and I think I may have gotten something not quite right 
last week. I described for the audience the bas relief, the frieze above the bench in the Supreme Court, which has kind of a tablet with Roman numbers 1 through 10, I through X. And I said that was the Ten Commandments. Now, I've since discovered that some court literature says, oh, no, that's actually a representation of the first Ten Amendments, not the Ten Commandments. Although on a different portion of the courtroom, the frieze above, I believe, the south wall, um, the frieze above the benches, the east wall, there actually is a pretty emphatic depiction of Moses actually with the Ten Commandments and actually some some Hebrew characters. It's part of the great lawgivers of history, Hammurabi, um, Solon, etc. So I did want to correct that. Now, there's some debate, actually, truthfully, about whether that the court's literature's claim, oh, that one above the bench is the Ten Amendments, the first Ten Amendments, what we call the Bill of Rights, rather the Ten Commandments. Maybe they're just spinning it in a certain way to avoid Establishment Clause objections. Yeah, because it has two tablets that look very much like the Ten Commandments. So, uh, you know, I've never seen the Ten Amendments listed that way. In any event, even if it is the amendments, it, it, it's maybe a gesture toward or an allusion to the, the, the Ten Commandments. But this raises actually another interesting point, uh, since we were talking about all the iconography, the grandeur, the majesty of the building. In the Great Hall, there are busts of all the chief justices, the past chief justices, including a bust of Roger Tawney, who authored the now infamous Dred Scott decision. He also did many other things. But just last week, the House voted, and the Senate had, had done so previously, to remove a bust of Tawney from the halls of Congress. And that's, that bill is going to President Biden for his signature. What do we think, Andy, you and I, about that the bust should remain in the Supreme Court's Great Hall? I think it should remain, uh, because it's actually part of history. All the justices are there. I actually don't like airbrushing out history. In some ways, actually, it's a virtue that the Constitution, because of its amendment procedure, in which these amendments, like 1 through 10, are added as postscripts, and we don't airbrush out, we don't a word process the original text, So everyone today in the hundreds of millions of copies of the Constitution can see the three-fifths clause right there. It's in the document, even though it's been superseded. And I tend to think that's the proper way to think about the court's past. It it should have, if it's going to have 15 other chief justices, of course it should have Roger Taney. But here's the point, Andy. Even though history is history, we don't have to necessarily honor each and every chief justice the same way. My favorite is Earl Warren, John Marshall, and not Roger Taney. And this is relevant, and we don't need to honor each opinion equally. Some are canonical, some are egregiously erroneous. And this connects to what I was saying before. Until now, the court has never cited with approval Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore, which is to repeat, not an opinion representing five votes. It's not an opinion of the court. It's only concurrence, and the court has never cited it with approval. And that's what we are at risk of doing as a result of the oral argument that, that you and I heard, Andy. Um, I'd love your thoughts. Of course, it's a complicated topic, and we've discussed this in uh, personally and uh, in regards to Yale uh, in terms of the naming of the residential colleges, John C. Calhoun had a college named after him, which has since been been renamed. It's a little different, perhaps, than documenting all of the uh, of the people who served as the chief justice of the Supreme Court. 
Um, but anyway, these renaming issues are, are quite interesting. We had John Witt on our podcast earlier who chaired a renaming commission at Yale that dealt with uh, questions like this and tried to come up with some principles. I would also note that actually there's an important, important opinion uh, of the Supreme Court that wherein uh, Justice Scalia referenced not the, not the bust of Tawney, but a portrait of Tawney uh, that appears uh, elsewhere um, in an interesting way. So, the, you know, the, even the, the infamous, um, if they're depicted, we can reference them in some way. So that, that actually has value. But at any rate, uh, getting back to the experience of being at the oral argument, you know, three hours, very intense, but certainly was also spiked with, uh, with humor. And uh, actually, I think at one point we might be useful to do a podcast about humor uh, in in law. But uh, anyway, so uh, you know, we picked out a couple of clips to sort of wind up with uh, to lighten the mood, maybe a little bit after your Fed Courts uh, tutorial, Mr. Dr. Kingsfield or Professor Kingsfield. <laughs> so uh, here's uh, an early uh, clip from the oral argument with uh, Neil Katyal addressing uh, Justice Thomas. And then after I play that, I'm going to play a, a later clip where Justice Thomas addresses Neil. And Justice Thomas, if I may, in two decades of arguing before you, I've waited for this precise case because it speaks to your method of interpretation, which is history. And the founding evidence here is overwhelming. And I point you to four things. First, the Constitution uses the same word, legislatures, as the Articles of Confederation, and 10 of state constitutions under the Articles regulated federal delegates. Second, after the Constitution was ratified, states kept regulating it. States like Delaware and Maryland and Mississippi expressly regulated federal elections, as did three-quarters of the states. Third, New York in 1792. This example is really important. I think it's truly action as opposed to the talk from Schuyler and Justice Story. In 1792, the Council Revision, which has four people on it, three judges, one governor, vetoed a federal elections bill for the selection of delegates to the House of Representatives. It was a time, place, manner thing. Why did they, why did they veto it? They said because it is, quote, repugnant to the state constitution. That is very strong evidence. That's exactly the example you used in Smiley to build your decision there. And lastly, and most importantly, the dog never barked. The Federalist Papers have three different Federalist Papers on everything he's been talking about, about the Elections Clause. Not a person said anything like that they were trying to create this strange animal. This isn't looking like into a crowd and trying to pick out your friends. This is like looking into the Lollapalooza crowd and picking out everyone who speaks 15 languages. I don't know about Lollapalooza. (laughs) Okay, well, the Lollapalooza got a lot of play later, but... uh, uh, this is more about what uh, the way Neil led off to Justice Thomas, and here's Justice Thomas's later reply. Justice Thomas, anything further? Uh, actually, I don't, but I've been waiting uh, 30 years to ask him a question. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> that was good. Drum roll. So here's what's great about that exchange. This is a little inside baseball, but I'm going to unpack it a bit. So first, Neil was cute and funny, but substantively bang on. That's that, Neil, really well done. That's one of the best clips 
you know, of any of the oral advocates. And, and we had a lot of good clips. Our lawyers had a lot of good moments, but that was really great. Well done, Neil. Um, and what he did was originalism. That's why he's been waiting a long time to make in, uh, to, to address Justice Thomas, because Justice Thomas is an advocate of originalism, and Neil hasn't always been on the originalist side of things, let's say, when it came to the role of precedent in the Dobbs case and, and uh, on Roe versus Wade. So Neil was basically saying, okay, now I get to make an originalist argument to you, and I've been waiting a long time for that. So well done, and he's, and he's highlighting the significance of originalism. If you are principled originalist, look, this evidence is overwhelming. So well, and, and, it, and it is, and well done, Neil. And then the later response from Clarence Thomas was so cool because it was slightly self-deprecating, you see, because he's making fun of the fact that for many years he didn't ask questions at oral argument. Now, he had some reasons for, for not doing that, and now he does, and our audience has, has heard. It was never because he couldn't ask great questions. He's a spectacular on the bench, very quick and lively and smart and, and, and serious um, so, and, and funny. That was a real, and that's why people laughed in part because, of course, they knew that Justice Thomas, for his first, you know, fifteen, twenty years, whatever, on the bench, almost never asked a question. So that uh, that was a really, you know, uh, cool moment. And even though the courtroom is pretty big, as as you mentioned, it's also pretty small, especially the space between the lawyers and the bench. You're 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 six feet away, eight feet away. It's a pretty intimate conversation back and forth. And they're, and the lawyers are talking to each other as their friend, you know, the friends on the other side, and they're all sitting together inside the bar of the court. So that was, um, you know, a moment and, and people laughed because it's a pretty knowledgeable audience. You know, uh, some people are just walking in off the street, but a lot of them are D.C. lawyers and former Supreme Court clerks and former Supreme Court litigants. We bumped into Michael Dreben, for example, who's argued argued a hundred case, more than a hundred cases before the Supreme Court. So that's why you had that great laugh. Great moment all around. Whatever you think of ISL, great moment all around. But on the merits, Neil was bang on. Well done, Neil. Proud of you. And then finally, there was a little bit of a fourth wall broken uh, in this discussion with uh, Justice Kagan and uh, Solicitor General Prelogger. From, and uh, of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact. I mean, I think it's 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 probably welcome. You know, when you and I, Akil, we're we're talking about including this clip. Um, you know, we talk. Oh, you know, there's SG, former SG, whatever. One thing we didn't say is, you know, two women, right? And so it's been now more normalized that there are women on the court. So that's that's a good thing. Justice Kagan. Uh, on your side of the podium, we have one vote in favor of a gap between constitutional and statutory questions and one vote saying it's the, um, it's the same, so you get to decide. <laughs> <laughs> I love casting a deciding vote. We don't think that there is uh, – Just on your side of the podium. Sadly, yes. <laughs> okay. So on, on your side of the podium – so this is, again – so funny because it's one former SG to another S to a current SG. Yes, both women and Justice Kagan is saying, "Oh, it's one thing to you know to cast a deciding vote, so to speak, among the lawyers on one side." 
but it's very different. But we're, I'm on the other side of the podium, and, and it's possible that one, of, that one of us is going to cast the deciding vote on the bench. But just to repeat, lots of SGs there. Kagan, former SG. Roberts, former acting SG under Ken Starr. Neil, former assistant to Kagan, and then her acting replacement, former acting SG. Really, former confirmed SG and the current confirmed SG, Free Logar. So lots of SGs. So... Anyway, this has been a you know lengthy podcast, but I think there's there's a lot to cover, and obviously we think Moore versus Harper is is quite important, and this is a great opportunity for uh, for you to 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 teach our audience. Uh, so I think it's actually quite memorable. So thank you. Um, and just like on the Supreme Court, we try to be very substantive and and very serious, but we also from time to time have a little bit of fun, uh, as did um, uh, Neil and and Justice Thomas and Prelogar and Justice Kagan. So until next week. Thank you.